Castle, episode number 55, for June 2nd, 2009. Bottom Feeding by Tim Pratt. Welcome to PodCastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Bottom Feeding by Tim Pratt. In trying to come up with something pithy to say in the intro to this story about love, death, wisdom, and catfishing, I was faced with several options. On one hand, I thought about getting all Jungian with it and talking about how deep water symbolizes the unconscious and fish are all the things we can't reveal to ourselves, and I could even throw around erudite references to Moby Dick and the old man in the sea and Shinto creation myths. But then I decided that would all be incredibly boring and stuffy, and since it was catfish we were talking about, I should stick with a crowd pleaser, like noodling. Noodling, also called hand fishing, grabbling, or hog fishing, is the practice of sticking your hand into a dark, slimy underwater catfish hole and wiggling your fingers around until you have sufficiently annoyed the resident catfish into biting you. Then you grab the poor beleaguered beast by the gills, haul him out, and ask your friend to open a Pabst Blue Ribbon on your behalf because now all you have is a bloody stump where your hand used to be. I have to say, neither of these directions seemed quite right. So I pinged author Tim Pratt and outlined my quandary to him. He suggested I just talk about how doggone tasty fried catfish is. That's a great idea, I replied, but I've never had fried catfish. Would the Gorton's fish sticks in my freezer do in a pinch? They are as similar as a McDonald's cheeseburger is to a nice piece of filet mignon wrapped in bacon, was his answer, delivered with as much wryness as the impersonal screen of Facebook could convey, and so another line of introduction was shot all to heck. So while I look online for a place in Portland where I can sample fried catfish, I hope you enjoy bottom feeding, which originally appeared in Asimov's and also appears in Tim's collection, Heart and Boot and Other Stories from Nightshade Books. You can also hear his Hugo Award-winning story, Impossible Dreams, on PodCastle's sister podcast, Escape Pod. And be sure to check out his Marla Mason urban fantasy novels, which you can find under the name T.A. Pratt. The latest, Dead Rain, came out in November, and according to Tim's blog, all four novels in the series will soon be available for download from audible.com. You can learn more at his website, timpratt.org, or at marlamason.net, where you can find novel excerpts and other free goodies. The story is read by Kip Manley, the creator of City of Roses, an occasional internet and small press serial. It's an urban fantasy set in the one true city of roses, that is, Portland, Oregon, except in Kip's version, it's a Portland with a much higher proportion of sword fights than those of us who know Portland have come to expect. You can read story episodes free or order print copies of volumes one through six at thecityofroses, all one word, dot com. Enjoy the story. Bottom Feeding by Tim Pratt Graydon sat in a lawn chair beneath a bedraggled weeping willow, by the pond where Shit-Eater lived. A canvas grocery bag rested in the mud on his left, bulging with his most prized possessions, carefully chosen that morning. A mason jar filled with smooth stones and sea glass that he'd gathered during childhood summers at the beach house. The copy of Watership Down his brother Alton had been reading before he died, tattered bookmarks still in place. 
a twist of braided blonde hair Rebecca had given him to remember her by the summer she went off to Ireland and met Laurie, the program from the first play he'd ever directed in college. All the things he was finished with, all the things he had to trade. Graydon sipped strong coffee from his thermos and watched the sun begin its day's climb up from the east. Graydon had been here for an hour already, mostly in the dark. He was crying a little, off and on, almost absent-mindedly. A loaded spear gun lay across his lap, bought two days before at a sporting goods superstore in Atlanta for more money than Graydon had expected. The clerk had asked where he was going fishing. Graydon said, A pond behind my house. The clerk laughed, thinking it was a joke, and gone over the basics of handling the spear gun with Graydon, who'd never used anything more complicated than a rod and reel before. All right, then, Graydon said, wiping tears from his cheeks. He lifted the spear gun in one hand and the canvas bag of treasures in the other. He waded into the murky green water up to his waist and upended the bag upon the waters. The braided hair floated, as did the book and program, their pages darkening with water, but the full mason jar sank, ripples spreading around it. A light rain fell, making more ripples. Thunder rumbled. Those were good omens for this kind of fishing. There's your bait, Graydon said. Come on, shit-eater. He held the spear gun as the clerk had shown him and waited for the thing he hunted to swim up from the depths. The salmon of knowledge lived a long time ago in the well of Shigesh, where the waters ran deep and clear as rippling air. He swam there, thinking his deep thoughts, coming to the surface occasionally to eat the magical hazelnuts that fell into the water from the trees on the bank. Every nut contained revelations, but the salmon was not a mere living compendium of knowledge. He was a wise fish, too, and so chose to live quietly, waiting for the inevitable day when he would be caught and devoured. The salmon dimly remembered past and perhaps future lives, experiences inside and outside of time, from the whole history of the land, being blinded by a hawk on a cold winter night, hiding in a cave after a flood, running from a woman who might have been a goddess or who might have been a witch. The salmon did not look forward to being caught and cooked and eaten. But knowing what the consequences would be for the one who caught him, he had to laugh, insofar as fish, even very wise ones, are able to laugh. Graydon started fishing the summer after he got kicked out of college. Lacking any other direction, still stunned by his brother's sudden death, Graydon had returned to his home down of Pomegranate Grove, Georgia, and rented a two-bedroom house with a fireplace on the edge of town. He had a spare room full of Alton's things, as he was the sole inheritor. Their father was long dead, their mother in a nursing home victim of early-onset senile dementia. Every day, Graydon sorted through the piles of his dead brother's things, touching objects both familiar and foreign, and one day he found a rod, reel, and tackle box. He and Alton had gone fishing often when they were children, and suddenly that seemed like the proper monument, a way to honor Alton's memory and simultaneously pass the empty days. So Graydon made a lunch and took the rod and tackle out back to the pond by the woods behind his house. It wasn't much of a pond, maybe thirty feet across at its widest, with a few reeds in the shallows and one big weeping willow close to the water. These ponds could be deep, though, and it wasn't trash-strewn or visibly polluted, so he thought there might be fish. Graydon sat on the bank and put a flashy red and yellow lure on the hook, probably all wrong for whatever kind of fish lived in this pond, if any, but he didn't care if he caught anything. He just wanted to sit and think, hold the pole, watch the red and white bobber float. That's what fishing was about, he recalled. Actually, catching anything was sort of an optional extra. 
He cast the line out into the middle of the pond and settled down with his back against the willow tree, thinking about Alton, who taught him how to climb trees and cheat at poker, and when they were older, how to take a hit off a bong. Graydon hadn't used any of those skills in a long time. Alton had taught him to fish, too, though neither one of them had ever been any good at it. Graydon wondered if the two of them had ever fished in this particular pond. Couldn't remember. It was possible, as they tried little fishing holes all over Pomegranate Grove. The bobber sank under the green surface of the pond, and the rod moved in Graydon's hands. He reeled the line in slowly, wondering what kind of fish had been fooled by the flashy lure. But whatever it snagged on the hook didn't move like a fish or like anything alive. Something dark and round broke the surface, as big as a human head, but smooth and shining. Graydon reeled it in the rest of the way and bent over the water to fish it out. He'd caught a motorcycle helmet, a black one with a star-shaped crack on one side. The line was tangled around the chin strap, and Alton's flashy red and yellow lure was gone. Graydon turned the helmet over and let the water run out of it into the pond. Alton had died in a motorcycle accident, had lost control and smashed into a guardrail on a bridge, then gone flying off the bike into the shallow swamp water below. He'd landed face down, probably knocked unconscious, and though his head struck a rock in the water, the blow didn't kill him. The helmet had protected his skull. Instead, Alton had died by drowning in two feet of water. Graydon touched the star-shaped crack, then threw the helmet violently back into the pond. Remembrance was one thing, but pulling up something like that was too morbid by half. The helmet hit the water and floated, open end up, like a little plastic boat. Something broke the surface of the water, mud brown and slickly shining. It was a catfish, the biggest Graydon had ever seen. Its huge head stayed out of the water for a long moment, teacup-sized, black eyes staring at Graydon. Long whiskers sprouted from around its mouth in nasty profusion. The catfish dove under the water again with a flip of its stubby fins, then re-emerged beside the floating helmet, its gaping fish mouth open wide enough to swallow a basketball. The fish ate the helmet in one bite and disappeared beneath the ripples. Graydon whistled. He'd heard a catfish that big. They were the stuff of southern rural legend. Huge catfish, decades old, and when they finally caught and cut open, all sorts of things were found in their bellies. If this fish was big enough to eat a motorcycle helmet, well... Graydon wasn't going to catch a fish like that with Alton's old rod and reel. There was little chance of catching it at all. That fish was older than him by many years, probably, and had doubtless outwitted scores of better fishermen. Still, that would be something, wouldn't it? Catching something so big, so old, so wily? Even if he didn't succeed, it would be fun trying. And just like that, Graydon had a goal for the summer. Here are some things that have been found inside the bellies of large catfish in the American South. License plates. Diamond rings. Steel buckets. Beer bottles. Lug nuts. Picture frames. Doorknobs. Alarm clocks. Boots credit cards, stolen hotel ashtrays, rubber duckies, cowbells, candles, dinner plates, floppy canvas fishermen's hats, spectacles, wallets with money still inside, one-armed teddy bears, other fish, snapping turtles, spark plugs, toy pistols, hubcaps, wheelbarrow tires, coffee cups, thermoses, roofing shingles, human hands, telephones, and screwdrivers. Here are some things that have never been found inside the bellies of large catfish in the American South. Solace. Hope. Lost ideals. True love. Things that smell nice. Glory. 
everything you ever dreamed of having but never received, a reason to go on living. On Friday, the week he started fishing, Graydon drove into Atlanta to have coffee with his oldest and most bewildering friend, Rebecca. Graydon arrived at the Pelican Cafe first and took a table by the windows beneath an art student's painting of sinister mermaids fencing with human thigh bones. He ordered a glass of Chardonnay and sipped it, thinking of catfish mostly, until Rebecca showed up only fifteen minutes late. Her honey-colored hair knotted in a profusion of small and not very tidy braids. She wore white shorts that showed off her legs and pale yellow blouse open at the throat. Graydon had adjusted to the situation with Rebecca long enough ago that he no longer felt a pang at her loveliness, but he still noticed it. They'd grown up together in Pomegranate Grove, dated briefly in high school before Rebecca met Lori and realized she was a lesbian. After a few bumpy months following that revelation, the two of them had become friends again, though Graydon still had trouble warming up to Lori, with her sharp features and her new-age affectations, her astrology proselytizing vegetarianism. Rebecca apologized for being late. She might as well apologize for being Rebecca, Graydon thought, and spread her things out on the table. Textbooks, a notebook, highlighters, pens, a cup of coffee, a bottle of beer, all squeezing Graydon onto a tiny edge of the table with barely room for his wine glass. Rebecca's things always expanded to fill the available space, and her personality did much the same. How's life? Graydon asked. Rebecca shrugged. School-wise, I'm getting fluent in Old English for what that's worth. Chaucer's never been funnier. The freshmen I'm teaching are functionally illiterate, and the professor I'm TAing for is more interested in my T and A than my ideas. Lori's gone from vegetarian to vegan, and if I see another bean sprout, I'm going to scream. I've been sneaking out to eat cheeseburgers for months now, and I'm getting tired of living a dietary lie. Lori says my R is getting all black and spiky, which I figure can't be good. Mostly, I'm too busy to worry about how I'm doing. She smiled brightly. You? I've been fishing, he said, and told her about catching the helmet and seeing the catfish, though he hadn't seen the fish again in the three days since, despite spending hours at the pond each day. I've heard of that fish, Rebecca said. Dad told me about it. We used to live about a mile from your place. You remember that? At least, I guess it must be the same fish. I'm surprised it's still alive. Dad said people have been trying to catch it since he was a kid. I think trying to catch that fish used to be a major pastime in the grove. I suppose that kind of thing has gone out of style. I blame video games, Graydon said. Rebecca ignored him. The fish even has a name. Guess what it is? Mr. Whiskers? Sin Eater. Except when my dad told me about it, he started to say, Shit Eater, I think. <laughs> then decided to protect my delicate ears from such profanity. Shit Eater, Graydon repeated. That's charming. When I catch him, you can come over. We'll have a big catfish dinner. I'm coming over anyway, she said. You're going to let me stay the night next weekend, and I won't take no for an answer. I've got to get away from Lori for a while. She won't even eat fish anymore. That used to be our big compromise, but now she says it's morally repugnant. She only ever ate salmon anyway. She said everything else was too fishy tasting. I mean, come on, it's fish. What should it taste like? Catfish is pretty bland, I guess, Graydon said. That's not bad, fried with the right spices, Rebecca said. So, can I come over? You can cook for me, though I don't think you'll be feeding me shit-eater, as appetizing as that sounds. You need more than a rod and reel to pull him in anyway. I don't know, Graydon said, thinking about the mess in his house, all Alton's things in the spare bedroom, also thinking of how hard it would be to sleep in the same house all night with Rebecca and not be able to touch her. He hadn't had sex since a bad one-night stand at school in New York. Rebecca knew that. 
She must know that he still had feelings for her. He hadn't made it much of a secret. But it sounded like things were going badly with her and Lori, and Rebecca and Graydon had been lovers before in dim pre-college antiquities, so... Rebecca snorted. Come on. Like you're too busy? You've got too much other stuff to do? Graydon didn't answer. Didn't let any expression touch his face at all. Oh, hey, I'm sorry, Gray, Rebecca said, reaching across the table to touch his hand. I didn't mean anything by it. You're getting your head together, figuring out what you want to do, and that's fine. Graydon nodded, but he didn't think Rebecca believed what she'd just said. For her life was work, being active, moving forward. She wouldn't be treading water if she were in Graydon's position. Hell, she'd never have let herself get into Graydon's position in the first place, blowing off classes, avoiding advisors, finally being invited to pursue graduate studies elsewhere, as he had been. Rebecca didn't have much patience for self-pity. Sure, he said. Next Friday? Salmon aren't much like catfish. Salmon are beautiful, insofar as fish can be beautiful, with silver scales and graceful bodies. Catfish are ugly, whiskered, mud-colored, slow. Salmon are wiser than other fish, wiser than many people, wiser than some bears. Catfish are not wise, but they are wily. Salmon, it is said, eat hazelnuts. Catfish eat shit and garbage and dead things. Salmon are patient as gods, only hurrying to spawn. Catfish are patient as death, only hurrying to feed. The flesh of salmon is delicious. The flesh of catfish is bland as rainwater. Salmon sometimes grant wishes, when that seems the wise course. Catfish can grant wishes too, but different wishes for different reasons. Salmon know more than catfish, but catfish remember everything. That weekend, Graydon studied how to catch giant catfish. It was surprisingly uncomplicated, at least in theory, according to the books and websites he consulted, but the definition of giant seemed to be 30 or 40 pounds, which he thought was far smaller than shit-eater. He looked further and discovered that the largest catfish ever caught in the U.S. had come from a pond in Tennessee and weighed 111 pounds. Graydon had no idea how big shit-eater was, but he suspected it was bigger than that. The record-breaking fish had been caught with deep-sea tackle, but one trip to a sporting goods store showed Graydon that he couldn't afford that kind of equipment, not with the dregs of his student loans running out. Still, Graydon was hardly an expert on catfish, so perhaps he'd overestimated shit-eater's size. Starting Monday, he tried the recommended approaches for catching giant catfish from the shore, setting multiple poles and lines on the bank with hooks set at various depths. He tried different baits, from small fish to rotten chicken and beef, but none of it worked. The bait came out again sodden but untouched, and there was no sign of the big fish at all, not even a ripple. Graydon didn't catch anything, as if there were no other fish in the pond at all, which he supposed was possible. Shit-eater could have eaten them all. By Wednesday, Graydon had given up on catching the monster, already bored and frustrated by the effort. It had been hubris to think he could catch such a monster, just one more instance of his reach exceeding his grasp. On Thursday, he sat on the bank with his dead brother's fishing rod jammed into the mud, lying in the water, staring at the sky. The fishing rod was almost a formality now, just a prop, set dressing. It justified his sitting by the water in the shade, listening to the willow's drooping branches sway in the breeze. The rod fell into the water. The bobber was submerged. Had Shit-Eater bitten the hook and pulled in the rod? Graydon splashed into the pond up to his knees, going after the rod, which was already floating away. He reached for the rod and something 
passed before him, brushing against his legs. He looked down, and there was Shit Eater, far bigger than 111 pounds, as big around as a barrel. Shit Eater took the fishing rod into his mouth like a dog, picking up a thrown stick and dove with it, disappearing. Graydon stared down into the water for a moment, then shouted and slapped at the water angrily, You fucking fish, bring that back! Shit Eater ignored food, it ignored everything, but it tried to eat his brother's fishing rod? What kind of beast was this? Graydon slogged out of the water and sat, dripping beneath the willow tree, thinking dark thoughts about fishing with dynamite, about blasting Shit Eater with a shotgun, but he didn't have dynamite or any guns at all. Something drifted on the surface of the water, eddying gradually toward the bank until it floated just offshore in front of the willow. Graydon leaned forward to look at it. It was a dream catcher, a wooden hoop threaded with string and hung with wet feathers. Alton had given one of those to Graydon years and years ago after a trip he took to an Indian reservation in the southwest. Graydon had lost it on one of his many moves. He'd missed it a little. Graydon reached into the water and lifted the floating dreamcatcher out. It was the same. The same snapped threads, the same gray and white feathers, the same size, everything. It was the dreamcatcher he'd lost, the one Alton had given him. He'd almost swear to it. Graydon looked at the pond for a while. He'd baited his hook that first day with one of Alton's lures. He lost the lure but found a motorcycle helmet. Now he'd lost Alton's fishing rod found a dream catcher. The thoughts that occurred to him were ridiculous, but on the other hand they were testable. Graydon went back to the house and came back a bit later carrying some of the things Alton had left behind. There are myths about salmon, but catfish don't warrant much more than folklore. Some say that catfish bite well when it thunders, or that they're easy to catch when it rains. The catfish will bite a hook dipped in motor oil or that you'll be lucky fishing for them if your pockets are turned inside out. If an owl hoots in the daylight, the catfish are easy to catch. All of those beliefs are true, but some of them confuse cause and effect. By nightfall, Graydon had thrown almost all of Alton's possessions into the pond and received an equal number of things in return. Throwing in Alton's class ring brought back one of his brother's running shoes, his initials written in permanent marker on the inside of the tongue. Throwing in freshman algebra class notes brought back a sparkling geode Alton had used as a bookend, though Graydon had to fish that out with a net after Shit Eater swam repeatedly over the spot where it rested like Flipper the dolphin from that old TV show, trying to explain something to stupid humans. Shit Eater ate almost everything Graydon threw him. Graydon intentionally threw in a few things with no connection to Alton, a used paperback he'd picked up at a yard sale for a dime, a salt shaker that came with the house, a handful of change. Shit-eater ignored those things. Nothing came back in return. After an hour of casting in and receiving back, Graydon sat by a pile of returned objects, all of them things lost for years before. Did you eat my brother, you fuck? Graydon asked, but knew it was absurd. Alton had died in a body of water that was little more than a creek miles from here. The connection between his brother and Shit-Eater was stranger than that, more complicated, more mysterious. Perhaps it would prove too mysterious for Graydon to understand. When it grew dark, Graydon started to gather the object Shit-Eater had given him, or allowed the pond to give him, or whatever. But why would he want to keep those things? They were just lost things, some with a charge of sentimental value, most lacking even that. 
Graydon began tossing the objects into the water as he'd thrown back the helmet that first day, and Shit-Eater rose up again and swallowed it all, wolfing the things down as quickly as Graydon could throw them in. It was hard to tell in the dark, but Shit-Eater seemed larger than he had been before. Nothing new came floating out of the pond after Graydon finished throwing everything in, and Shit-Eater didn't break the surface of the black water again once he finished eating. Graydon kept only the Dreamcatcher. He suspected he might need it as nightmare seemed inevitable. Trudged back to his house, thinking. In psychoanalysis, fishing refers to a process whereby subconscious thoughts, feelings, and motivations are drawn up randomly without any attempt to order or explain them until later. The process is poorly named, since it's more like dredging or using a dragnet than the precise efforts of an angler. It pulls up everything, garbage and treasure alike. It's a technique that only a catfish could love. A good fisherman, on the other hand, knows just what sort of bait to use and where to cast his line. Graydon woke early on Friday morning and decided to continue his experiments. He threw in one of his mother's good china cups and received a small jar labeled with a piece of masking tape that contained the gallstones she'd had surgically removed when Graydon was 15. He remembered visiting her in the hospital, remembered her telling him that the doctors were going to give her the gallstones, how she planned to throw them into the ocean next time they went to the coast. She was already starting to lose it then, her mind beginning its slow unraveling, but it had seemed like simple eccentricity in those days, not the full-blown dementia it would become. Graydon looked at the jar for a while. This was a valuable discovery. This meant the fish didn't have anything to do with Alton, not specifically. Graydon threw the gallstones back into the water. Shittier was... was... He didn't know what shit-eater was. Something to do with the dead, maybe. Or memory, or loss, or grief, or hope, or closure. Graydon couldn't figure it out. It wasn't like in stories where things were neatly explained, where the mystery had a function, however obscure, where the operations of the supernatural could be explained. This was something else. Something magical, but incomprehensible, which was perhaps the nature of real magic. But Graydon couldn't ignore it, couldn't turn his back and go on living, forget about the pond and the creature that lived in it. There was a story about a magical salmon. Rebecca had told him about it after her trip to Ireland, where she met Laurie. There once was a wise salmon that lived in a pool and ate magic nuts, and some great Irish hero caught the fish, roasted it, and that was a pretty good deal, because whoever ate the fish would gain its wisdom. What would happen if Graydon ate Shit-Eater? Would he gain wisdom or magic? The ability to call the dead speak to the dead? Or the ability to forget the dead? There was supposed to be a river in hell whose waters made you forget, and Graydon suspected that if such a river were real... It would be inhabited by fat, brown channel cats, just like Shit-Eater. What better fish to have the flesh of forgetfulness than a bland catfish fed on garbage? Hadn't Rebecca said the fish was also called Sin-Eater? It didn't matter. He was never going to catch it anyway. Graydon lay under the willow tree and looked up at the sky, and after a while, he fell asleep. Someone nudged Graydon in the ribs. He opened his eyes, and there was his brother Alton, standing over him wearing his motorcycle jacket, boots, and jeans. His hair was wet, even his stupid little goatee. You're more full of shit than that fish, bro, he said. Alton? Graydon said. The tree was making a low noise, like weeping, and the branches were moving despite the lack of wind. Alton squatted down beside Graydon. Oh, 
don't get up, he said ironically. I'm not offended. I'm dead, after all. But you're not. Alton, I don't understand, Graydon said. That was the simple truth, and it almost made him burst out crying. He didn't understand why his mother had lost her mind, why Rebecca had fallen in love with a woman, why his brother had died, why grad school had been so difficult, why Shit Eater was eating the physical reminders of his loss without taking the memories themselves away. Nobody understands, Alton said. Maybe that's for the best. Listen, you don't want to eat that fish. I don't know what would happen if you did, but it's a big monster that eats dead things. It's not shiny and silver and full of magic nuts. Let it go. Quit wallowing. Get your life back together while you still have one. Alton had never been so blunt in life. He'd always been very live and let live, but maybe death had changed that. Shit, Alton, it's hard. You don't know what it's like. Nobody knows what it's like. And just because it hurts your feelings when I say you're wallowing, that doesn't mean it isn't true. You can't go on like this. The tree was moaning more loudly now, and night was falling quickly. I have to go, Alton said. It's getting late. Alton, no, I, I still don't. Someone nudged Graydon in the ribs. He opened his eyes. Rebecca stood over him, the sun behind her and a bottle of wine in her hand, looking down at him with a grin. Have a nice nap? Shall I assume dinner isn't ready? Graydon groaned and sat up. I had a dream. I bet, Rebecca said. Did it involve me and Lori and warm oil? Graydon grimaced. Lori isn't my type. I thought all you guys got off in the idea of two women together. I like it better when the women are interested in me, too. Well, hey, it's your dream, she said. Come on, I bought steaks. I was supposed to cook for you. Knock yourself out. I don't mind if you do the cooking. I just brought the food. Does Lori know you're eating steak? What Lori doesn't know, Rebecca said airily, and Graydon wondered what that meant if Rebecca had other things in mind for tonight, more things Lori didn't need to know about. He went back to the house with her, and for the first time in days, he didn't think about shit-eater at all. Graydon made steaks while Rebecca good-naturedly insulted his housekeeping. You never used to care so much about tidiness, Graydon said, standing at the stove, sautéing mushrooms. You try living with Lori, you'll start to care about tidy, too. One of us has to, and it's not going to be her. Sounds like you guys are going through a tough time. Yeah, but I don't think Lori realizes it. She can be pretty clueless sometimes. Rebecca had opened the wine right away, and now she sipped from a full glass. Her newest thing? She says I drink too much. I have a few beers on the weekends, maybe a glass of wine at night. She says I'm an incipient alcoholic. It sounds like she's worrying about all the wrong things, Graydon said. I didn't come here to talk about Lori, Gray, Rebecca said. No offense, but it's a subject I'm a little tired of, having to live with it every day. Sorry, what did you come here to talk about? Honestly... I hoped we could talk a little bit about you, Gray. He kept cooking, unsure how to take that. Rebecca always favored the direct approach. She would just ask in his position, but Graydon was not so comfortable. So he said, I've been trying to catch that fish. I see it all the time, but I can't get it. Try a spear gun, she said. They're pretty accurate over short distances. If you really see it that often, you can probably get it. Yeah, nothing I ever read suggested a spear gun. She shrugged. Well, you could try dynamite, but I figure you want to get the fish out in one piece. Shall I take this change of subject to mean you don't want to talk about you? Because I'm worried about you, Gray. I think you're sinking here, and I'm trying to throw you a rope. Graydon turned off the heat under the mushrooms. Oh, he said. And here I'd hoped you were planning to confess your love. He said it lightly, 
but he could tell from her expression that she saw past that. She'd always been able to look straight through him. I wish I could, Gray. I know you've carried a candle for me all this time, but she shook her head. I've got to stick things out with Lori. We've been in it too long to just give up. But if things don't work out, Rebecca looked into her wine, then shook her head, her braids swaying. No, Gray. I thought you always said you were bisexual. She half smiled. It's not about the sex. It's, I don't know. I just don't see you that way anymore, romantically. I'm not sure I did even when we were dating. You were the nicest guy I knew. You still are, and that's what attracted me. But as for any real spark, chemistry, I don't think it was there. I, I wanted it to be. Graydon poured a glass of wine for himself, trying to keep his hands steady. That's great, Rebecca, he said, telling me you never loved me at all. I always loved you. I still do. Just not that way. And I think you needed to hear that so you'd stop holding out hope if that's what you've been doing. The way you look when I tell you I'm having problems with Lori, you try to hide how happy it makes you, but I can see it and I don't like it. Maybe it's my own fault for not saying this before. Understood, Graydon said, turning back to the stove. I'm going to make salad. Do you want me to leave? She said. Graydon stood stiffly for a moment, then slumped. He sighed. No. I like having you here, obviously. You can't blame a guy for hoping, can you? I guess not, she said. Dinner was subdued, but after a few more glasses of wine, Graydon began to relax. He felt oddly burned out inside, hollow, but not tense. The reason for the tension was gone. Besides, maybe Rebecca was just fooling herself. Maybe in time, she'd see how good he was for her. He thought of his dream of Alton, his dead brother telling him to move on, but he wanted to move on with Rebecca. What else did he have left? Midnight came and went. They talked about books, movies, old memories. They didn't talk about Lori, and Rebecca didn't bring up whatever she'd wanted to say about Graydon wasting his life and his time. Finally, Rebecca stretched and said, So where do I sleep? You can take my bed. I'll take the couch. She nodded, then looked down at her hands in her lap, uncharacteristically shy. Listen, Gray, I know you must be feeling very isolated and cut off. If you wanted, you could come to bed with me. I know how hard it is to be alone, to crave intimacy and not find it. Things haven't exactly been warm between me and Lori lately, and I could use some comfort too. It wouldn't mean anything except that you're my friend and I love you, but if you want. In that moment, Graydon realized that Rebecca didn't know him, not really. Or if she did, she was deluding herself now, or just using him for her own needs. If Graydon made love to Rebecca, he wanted it to mean something. He wanted it to mean that she was coming back to him, that they would be lovers, that they would be together. To have sex together without any of that, it would be a killing thing. He would hate himself tomorrow, and this hollow feeling might never go away. He should say no. But how could he say no to the chance to make love to Rebecca? Yes, he said. I'd like that. Here is the reason the Salmon of Wisdom laughed when it thought of being eaten. It was prophesied that the hero Finnegus would catch the salmon and cook it and eat it and gain all knowledge and thus become a greater hero. Finnegus caught the salmon, but 
Being a hero, he was not accustomed to doing his own cooking, so he had his apprentice Finn roast the fish instead. The apprentice would not have dreamed of eating his master's meal, but he accidentally burned his thumb while turning the fish on the fire. Without thinking, Finn stuck his burned thumb into his mouth and sucked it, thus tasting the fish, thus gaining all its knowledge, and leaving his master, the hero, no wiser than before. That's why the salmon laughed. The morning after he slept with Rebecca, Graydon was perfectly charming, cooking breakfast, laughing with her, kissing her cheek. Inside, his heart was a cinder. He bid her farewell, promising to get together with her later in the week. When she was gone, he took four bottles of wine to the pond. He drank two, poured the other two into the water. Have a drink with me, shit-eater, he shouted. You're my only friend. The catfish did not surface. On Sunday, Graydon didn't fish. During his research, he learned that it was bad luck to fish on Sundays, and it seemed like a good time to be superstitious. Besides, he was hungover, didn't wake up till mid-afternoon. He thought about going to Atlanta, but the stores would be closed already. Nothing stayed open very late in the South on Sundays. On Monday, he went into the city and spent most of his remaining money on a spear gun. He practiced in the yard with it all afternoon, shooting his sofa cushions for practice. There was no reason to rush. He wanted to do this right. Tuesday, he rose before dawn, took the spear gun and a bag of his most precious things to the pond, and waded into the water. He scattered his bait and called for shittier as it began to rain. The catfish came out of the water and began to eat the things Graydon had scattered. Graydon watched, not moving, the rain soaking his hair and filling the pond with ripples. As Shitteater swallowed the last floating thing, Rebecca's braid, Graydon pointed the spear gun at his head and fired. The spear sank deep into Shitteater's head and the fish spasmed, tail flailing against the water. Graydon wrapped both hands around the haft of the spear and began pulling Shitteater toward the bank. It was easier than he had expected because the water buoyed the dead fish up. Graydon climbed onto the muddy, slick bank and wrestled Shit-Eater's vast body onto the grass. He went back to the house and returned with a wheelbarrow and some scrap boards. After bracing the wheelbarrow's wheel with a brick, he leaned the boards against the wheelbarrow, creating a makeshift ramp. Graydon shoved Shit-Eater's heavy corpse up the boards until it flopped into the wheelbarrow, then wheeled it to the concrete patio behind his house. As he pushed, the rain stopped. Just a brief summer shower there and gone. Graydon dumped Shit-Eater onto the concrete and stood looking down at it, expecting some thrill of triumph, but he was still all cinders and stones inside and felt nothing. He went inside for his knives and set about gutting and cleaning the catfish, referring often to a book he'd bought that explained the process. After a while, Graydon examined the contents of Shit-Eater's stomach but found little of interest, not even the things he'd most recently fed the fish, just weeds and mud. That was a disappointment. Graydon had hoped there would be something inside, something special. Well, he could still eat the catfish. That was the main thing. And it would cause something to happen. Kill him. Give him transcendent wisdom. Make him forget. Give him oblivion something. While Graydon cleaned the fish, the phone rang, but he ignored it, and eventually the caller gave up. Graydon was covered in blood and fish guts by the time he finished cleaning Shit-Eater. He wrapped the edible parts in plastic bags to keep the bugs from getting at them. They went to clean out the fireplace. Shit-Eater was too big for the oven. Graydon wanted to cook them all at once. When the fireplace was clean, Graydon put charcoal and lighter fluid under the grate and started a fire. Once it was burning well, he put Shit-Eater on the grate. 
Soon the fish began to roast. The smoke was strangely odorless. Graydon went into the bathroom and took a shower, letting the blood and guts cascade into the tub, letting the hot water pound on his overstrained muscles. After a while, afraid the fish would burn, he got out and wrapped a towel around himself. Rebecca was in the living room, kneeling before the fire, looking at the fish. Hey, naked guy, she said. I tried to call, but you didn't pick up. I figured you were out fishing. I guess I was right. This thing's enormous. What are you doing here, he said, thoroughly derailed. He hadn't expected to see Rebecca again so soon, and he wasn't sure what to do, as if, having successfully captured Shit-Eater, he had no further inner resources and could make no more plans. God, Lori and I had the worst fight. You wouldn't believe it, she said. I had to get out of there for a while. She leaned closer to the fire. I think your fish is starting to crumble and fall apart, she said, and reached out to nudge the fish more securely onto the grate. No! Graydon shouted, stepping toward her. Rebecca hissed and said, Shit! I burned myself. She stuck her thumb in her mouth and sucked. Graydon watched her, holding his breath. After a long moment, Rebecca took her thumb out of her mouth. A string of glistening saliva still connected the ball of her thumb to her lips. She looked up at Graydon into his face. The string of saliva broke. Rebecca's eyes went wide. Episode number 48 was Cat Rambo's I'll Gnaw Your Bones, the Manticore said, about a beast trainer and her manticore, and a lobotomy. On the blog, Saber Runner said, It's an interesting encounter from what could be a great world, but it seems to be missing a lot, like we're only hearing one chapter of a much larger book. Quite a few commenters agreed, saying the story felt incomplete. But Zornot dissented, saying, I think this was perfect as a short story. It started out with the question of whether certain creatures should be treated as animals or not, and it ended with a surprising answer to the question that leaves the reader asking his or her own questions. Sentiments on the board were similar to those on the blog. Anarchistador said, I have to agree with the consensus here. A good story, but puzzling. I felt as though there was some kind of subtext I just wasn't picking up on. Something about intelligence and misunderstanding, maybe. And most posters seemed to agree. Except for Anarchy, who was with Zornot. Anarchy wrote, The Manticore will gnaw the MC's bones sometime tonight, and Tara knows it, but not this one. Tara clearly says that some of the most cogent interactions she's had in her life have been with beasts, and doesn't ever parse that to mean she ought to examine her assumptions. And yet the MC is drawn sympathetically. She's meant to be in every person, and the story itself doesn't cast judgment on her or fall into preachiness. I think it's very honestly and subtly done. If you've got thoughts to share, come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and talk to us. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. 
John Hope said, We have sat on the riverbank and caught catfish with pinhooks. The time has come to harpoon a whale.